That's a terrible call. That is a terrible call. What up guys, welcome back to the Celtics Blog Podcast. I'm your host Adam Taylor, joined by my good friend and co-host Brendan Nunes. We're super lucky today guys, we've got Nate Duncan, part of the Dunks On Podcast, on the episode with us to join us. Thanks for joining us, Nate, how you doing my guy? As well as could be expected, how about you guys? Doing well man, Uh, glad to be having this conversation with you and I guess, I mean, most of the time we kind of want to ask about your background and I especially am pretty curious about how you got into all the podcasting and analysis that you do, but this is a Celtics pod, so we'd probably get taken down if we didn't talk a little bit of Boston basketball. <laughs> and uh, just as kind of a, a very general question here, how do you feel about the way that Boston's year had been going compared to your expectations headed in? And obviously Tatum's a major factor in that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I did a pod with uh, my partner, Danny LaRue, talking about some of our preseason predictions. I think the Celtics over-under was something like 49 and a half. And uh, I I went barely under with that. I think the biggest difference to me, I thought they'd still be pretty good offensively, but I thought the defense was going to slip. And to have both a top five offense and defense, it just didn't look on paper like this team was that good when you had Daniel Tice and Ennis Cantor at center and an undersized point guard with Kemba Walker. And so I probably really underrated both the, how good the wing defenders were going to be, Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and, and Jason Tatum, and also underrated Brad Stevens coaching me. He really just about every year after his first year has had a very high quality defense and he was able to accomplish that again this year. So that, that was probably my biggest miss on them. I thought they'd be, uh, close to the league average defensively, and that was not the case. Yeah, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum have really stepped it up. With Jason Tatum, one of the main things that I've been preaching about him is his ability to read the passing lanes and jump on them as quickly as possible. Oh, yeah. It's been one of the most understated developments of his game this year. On the defensive end, where do you see either his or Jalen's next step? Yeah, it's interesting because they kind of play different roles, right? Jalen is more going to be assigned to the other team's better scores. Tatum hasn't gotten that role as much. You know, he played it a little bit in, in that game right before the All-Star break against Kawhi Leonard. But generally, he's been more of that kind of Robert Covington archetype, play the passing lane, swipe down at the nail, uh, come over for block shots from behind. Um, so I think for... Brown, you know, they, they both, I think, could become more versatile in the other's role, right? Like, Brown could have a little bit more intelligence as a help defender, and Jason Tatum can continue to get stronger to where he can really guard some of those biggest wings. You know, if you go back to, for example, the series against LeBron in 2018, you know, LeBron was kind of able to go right through him, and that's not surprising. He was a rookie at that time, and so getting a little bit stronger for Tatum, being able to get around screens a little bit better, improving as an on-ball guy. And then for Brown, it's the opposite, his off-ball work. Yeah, I I think both of those are are great points there. And then if we're talking about what the playoffs would have looked like, and obviously it's complicated with this whole hiatus situation going on, um, but the way that Jason Tatum had been playing and, you know, player of the month in February there on 
30 points with 48% from three. I mean, if the Celtics were looking at that Jason Tatum in a playoff series, how would you feel about the chances against the monster that has been Milwaukee this season? Yeah, I think that he could definitely cause them some problems. You you know, Milwaukee loves – and Kemba Walker, too. I I think Walker was someone who, even back in his Charlotte days, caused problems for their system because they love to have Brooke Lopez and Robin Lopez lay back on the pick and roll. And so if you can take that three-pointer off the dribble, that can really break that scheme to some extent. Now they have a bunch of good defensive players. They got – Marvin Williams and Giannis, they could do more switching, more aggressive pick-and-roll coverages. Um, you know, I think the Celtics are, are about as well set up as you can be to score against that base Bucks defense. I do wish they had another shooter who is just like a really reliable bomber that you just absolutely can't leave open. They have a lot of capable three-point shooters, but uh, other than maybe Tatum, not one where you're like, all right, we just cannot leave this guy under any circumstances. Um, I think it would be the other end where Boston would really struggle because they don't have a natural matchup for Giannis. Uh, they don't have a natural matchup even for Brooke Lopez either. Chris Middleton has always given them a ton of problems. So I think that the bigger problem would be, I think it would be an offensive series, but I ultimately think that unlike some of the other teams that the Bucks have struggled against, they don't necessarily have the answer for Giannis, and they just will have to bring a lot of help. And I, I try right at the point of attack, it gets a lot more difficult. Moving on to the bench. The bench is what's worried Brendan and myself and probably every Celtics fan with a pulse through the first, well, through the entire season, assuming that the season's done and we're going to just see playoffs if we see any NBA basketball now. Do you feel like the bench is going to be the biggest, well, it's probably most definitely going to be the biggest issue how do you see the Celtics overcoming that lack of scoring off the bench? We've kind of alluded to staggering like JT and Hayward and keeping Brown and Kemba together or mixing and matching two of the four guys and sitting the other two early in a quarter. Do you see any other options available to them to have an effective bench unit? Yeah, I'm not as worried about the creation and primary scoring on the bench for the reasons that you said, right? I mean, the starting lineup in some ways almost has an overcapacity. And so by staggering those players, you can get the most out of Hayward or Walker or Tatum or Brown. I mean, all those guys uh, have proven you know, capable of scoring close to 20 points a game or over that in the right role. And so I think the bigger issue is not even necessarily the lack of strengths as far as scoring of players off the bench, but really, are they going to just have too many weaknesses, right? And the two weaknesses that can really pop up in the playoffs, number one is just being able to be attacked defensively, and number two is not being able to shoot. And so those are the two things that they don't have a lot of shooting off the bench. And, you know, the, the defense is unproven. You know, they are very, very high on Grant Williams. They also can just extend the minutes of all the starters and play that, all of them over 35 minutes a game, which they haven't been doing. But – a lot of those guys are unproven. I think it's definitely a concern, uh, you know, whether it's just playoff intensity, picking up a bunch of fouls right away. I, I think Grant Williams in particular can get there a year or two from now. He might be a little bit overstretched, and he's kind of their primary big uh, off the bench in some lineups. Or, or Ennis Cantor is another one where, you know, he, again, is a player who has a lot of potential weaknesses. So it is a concern. You don't want to get into these situations where these guys just have so many weaknesses that opponents can attack that it's difficult to play them. 
Do you have any more Celtics-related questions before I transition it a little bit here, Adam? I'm all good. I'm set on the Celtics questions. I'm excited to hear about Nate's journey to the top. <laughs> all right, Nate. So the way I figured <laughs> did, I could start you say with the, it, the top? <laughs> you're, you're close to the top. <laughs> yeah, I said the top. I said the top. <laughs> Got to big you up, man. Got to give you props. All right. All right. But well deserved. Well deserved. I'm, I'm, uh, I never thought of it that way, especially since I haven't left my house in two weeks. <laughs> yeah. That's the dream though, right? That's, that means you've made it. <laughs> if you've still got income and you're not leaving the front door, then you've definitely made it. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, what do you got for me here, I guess? Okay, so I figured the, I mean, I'm curious the original roots of it, I guess, to start here is where you just, did you always watch basketball growing up? And how did you get into basketball in the first place, I guess? And if it was just watching when you were little, who do you remember specifically watching and being really into? Yeah, I mean, my dad was was huge for me. I mean, he was always just kind of a, a high level of pickup player. You know, he was uh you know, would tell me stories of that. He would always go and play basketball in the Chicago area growing up, pick up games. I would like go, go along with him and watch him play. And then he kind of taught me the game uh, some. So, so that was kind of where it started. And then just uh, growing up in a couple of suburbs of Chicago, Evanston and Oak Park that were very multicultural, a lot of pickup basketball was played in those areas. And so I, I just, those were some of the formative experiences of my youth were just playing uh, on the playgrounds um, near my house. And then when I was in high school, I wasn't really any good. I was 6'6", but I weighed about 170 pounds. Not sure what that is uh, in, uh, in kilos for Adam there, but uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not very much. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I always kind of, I mean, I think my brain in some ways loved basketball even more than my body did. I always really enjoyed watching film and, you know, I would go and like scout all of our opponents in high school before the games. Like if they were playing on a night that we were off, I would just go drive and watch them play. So I, I was, I was always really into watching basketball and analyzing it. Um, but, you know, I didn't really believe it would be possible to have any kind of a career in media until I just started my own site in 2012 went to some events and things kind of took off from there um and, and the, the, hilariously the impetus for that was a, a girl broke up with me and I needed a distraction <laughs> so that's that's why go. I really like I was like I really need to like get some some self-development here so I'm, I'm gonna start doing this um because I've been a voracious consumer of NBA media but I never actually contributed myself there you go. Yeah. Shout out to the ex-girlfriend for getting you this far. That's, uh, that's, that's, <laughs> there we go. Uh, and so then what got you into, into podcasting since it's a different form and like the more traditional is obviously writing. And to me, it seems like the podcasting has obvi- is been what's really taken off. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even write it anymore. Um, but I, I, what started it for me was, you know, as I was getting more into basketball, I was, listening to podcasts on my way to and from work at about a 45 minute commute each way. And so there were definitely some really good influences for me. One was uh, Ryan Russillo's tales from the couch. Another one was David Locke's podcast. Obviously he was doing like a daily podcast on the jazz, but for me, I wanted a podcast that would be on every day that I could listen to be like, okay, what's going on in the NBA right now? What happened in the games last night? Salary cap stuff, what's happening 
going forward with that transactions um scouting like i i I just wanted a podcast where i was like hey if i listen to this podcast i'm going to know everything that's going on in the nba and that podcast didn't exist at that time so i decided to start yeah fair enough and then where did danny larue come in with this because it seems like i mean you you are the main host of dunked on but he's frequent on there obviously and when did that relationship sort of start and come into place yeah, we met covering Warriors games in the 13-14 season, the last Mark Jackson season. And you know, he'd actually been around the team for a long time at that point. That was my first year to get credentialed from a site called Basketball Insiders run by Steve Keller. I had met him at a uh, the what was then called the Adidas Euro Camp, which is a scouting event in Europe. And so... Danny and I had a lot of nerdy things in common. We were CBA dorks. We were both really trying to learn the CBA at that time. I made up all these flashcards that was basically everything relevant to know about the CBA for transactions. And he and I would have these sessions where he he would come over and we'd just quiz each other until we actually got them all. Um, That's kind of how we learned, learned the CBA. And so the first podcast I was ever on was his Real GM radio podcast in 2014. And, then uh, we just kind of kept talking. I did a few more episodes and I was like, hey, you know, what if we just did this on a daily basis? And so that was uh, the impetus to start it. He obviously was, was a great inspiration as well. So uh, playoffs of 2015, that's when we first started. Okay, yeah, so go, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go for it, Mike. So that, that transitions fairly well into a different question I had here for you. Is It's been about, like you said, four and a half, five years, playoffs 2015. If you could go back and talk to the Nate about to start recording his very first podcast episode. What advice do you have for him at this point? Um, have better audio quality. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> like actually take that seriously. I just didn't have an ear for it at the time. I didn't understand it. I was using my computer microphone and it just, it's taken me a long time to actually learn this stuff and just for some reason it was one of those technical things that was very confusing me I was just like oh you just need a better mic and like no it's actually much more about the room that you're in uh, and uh, so trying to find a way to make the audio quality better I mean it really you know I can't even listen to our early podcast because it was so atrocious but but uh, ultimately though I I wouldn't want to change too much I mean things have worked out so well for me I'd, I'd be worried about a butterfly effect to, if I did end up changing anything. But that, that would probably be the biggest thing. Like our audio quality at the beginning was just like absolutely embarrassing. And then you mentioned that you used to listen to David Locke's podcast and now you're doing a podcast on that network as well. How did that come about and what, how did you kind of get into the relationship building with somebody that was a former front office member? Yeah, so John, I, I would touch about this on our pod uh, that I do with John Hollinger, the uh, creatively named Hollinger and Duncan NBA show. And so I had, had introduced myself to him at Sloan in 2012 when I had barely even started writing, which I'm sure it was some awkward interaction with some guy that he just didn't want to, uh, didn't want to remember. But 
then when he started working for the Grizzlies, I'd go to all these scouting events and see him, and, and we'd get a chance to just uh, talk. And I think it, it was clear that he and I got along pretty well uh, when we would talk about stuff. Um, and so when I found out that he might be leaving the Grizzlies, I just basically started beating down his door to say, hey, uh, make sure that you keep your podcast rights uh, so we can do something together. And uh, I'm honored that he decided to because he was really probably my biggest inspiration in all of NBA media. I'd been reading him since 2002 when he was publishing these pro basketball forecast books. And that was when he had first introduced PR and pace adjusted stats, all of which were revolutionary at the time. I, I'd been looking for something like that. And so uh, to have really been reading him for 17 years and then to do a podcast with him, that was really like, that was a pretty surreal moment for me. Yeah, that's crazy. And to have somebody with so, so much insider knowledge as well, someone that's been in the industry must be super good to be able to pick their brains on like a daily um, what's the word I'm looking for? Daily basis. There we go. I got there in the end. <laughs> yeah, I think he's, it's tough sometimes because I don't want to go too far to where he sort of has to like, okay, can I really say this or not? Like sometimes we'll be sort of on the edge because obviously he still has a lot of loyalty to the people that he worked with, with the Grizzlies. And, you know, he doesn't want to talk badly about any of the, people that he was working with on other teams or anything like that. So he does have to kind of play it close to the best. So, so we are walking a fine line there. I don't want him to feel awkward or that he has to edit himself. So we do, that's something that we have to really finesse pretty well. But I think John does a nice job. at it. I, I, I know if I were in his position, I would find it difficult because I'm just part of the reason that I think my podcast does well is I just say what I think and I don't edit it at all. And so having to be in that position, I think, would, would be hard for me. Yeah, and that show in general, you guys do a great job. Like you said, Duncan and Hollinger, anyone not listening to that definitely should. And there was a post in – there was an article in the Washington Post today from Ben Gulliver talking about how this whole corona situation could cost the NBA $1 billion in revenue, obviously, with the entire suspension going on and all that. And your uh, Hollinger and – uh, Danny LaRue did a joint piece on The Athletic and threw around an estimate of a $8 million drop in the salary. I mean, how do you feel that all of this COVID-19 situation going on paired with the Maury and China situation earlier in the year is going to affect salary cap and money this offseason? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting, right? Because the salary cap for next year is supposed to be a projection of next year's revenues, right? So you're really, it's kind of a lagging indicator. If there are a way to do it, you would obviously, if they knew that revenue would be down so much this year, then they would have wanted to reduce this year's salary cap. And there are mechanisms in there if the players are getting too much money, which is probably going to happen this year. They're supposed to get a maximum of 51%. Uh, they'll probably blow past that if they get their full salaries because uh, revenue is likely to be lower in whatever form or fashion that the NBA season takes from here on out. So there's something called the escrow system where 10% of NBA's salaries are basically held in escrow until the end of the season. And you get to see whether how close they were to that 49 to 51% band of revenue that they're supposed to be in. And if the players are too high, then the owners holds back some of that money that's in escrow. 
if there is more, obviously, than a 10% reduction in projected revenue, then that isn't enough, right? And so when you get to that point, there's a CBA provision that essentially says the players and owners shall negotiate what the cap is going to be for next year. So that's really what's going to happen. It's, it's going to be a negotiation. And hopefully they won't need to reduce it that much because things will be relatively back to normal by that point. Hopefully we'll be playing close to a full season. The national TV deals are locked in, so that's not going anywhere. The local TV deals are locked in as long as, as, long as the NBA can deliver product next year. There isn't a huge reason to believe that revenue for next year will be lower. And so that's the hope is that it's not going to change things too much. Or maybe even what they would do is just agree that, hey, we're going to keep the salary cap the same because we don't want there to be a big jump in 2021. And maybe we'll keep it the same nominally, but then we'll find a way for the players to give more money back to the owners if, in fact, revenue is going to be lower. That, that would be my prediction. I don't think it's going to be some massive you know, 25% drop in the salary cap or something like that. I think you know, maybe they end up holding it steady. Maybe there's a slight re- reduction. But it's going to be a matter of negotiation, uh, ultimately, for the two sides to decide on that. And I think it'll all depend, obviously, what the world looks like once the NBA is actually able to resume play here. So the biggest worry coming out of that negotiation that you've mentioned, and you've gave every reason not to think about this, but it's something that came to my head, so I want to bring it up. Does that leave, however minute, does it leave a possibility for those negotiations to lead to a lockout if the salary cap did plummet? Uh, No, because there is a no strike, no lockout provision in the CBA. Now, I, yeah, actually, I, I, there is a remote chance because it, under the force majeure clause, there is a, a way for the owners to just completely cancel the CBA. And then if there's no CBA, they could lock out the players. But as long as the CBA is enforced, there's a no strike and no lockout pledge that takes place until the CBA is scheduled to end in a few years. So uh, it is very, very remote. I guess it could happen, but the owners would have to completely cancel this CBA first. And again, I think there's just, when both sides are really hurting like this, and also I think they'll notice, like there's going to be a lot of motivation to, hey, we lost a lot of money. We got to make this back here. You know, we, we can't be further alienating people. Like this is our chance now. Everyone's going back to normal. They've missed the NBA so much. I think there'll be an understanding from the sides that, hey, we need to just all work together here, get basketball back on the map, and finish the bleeding. The last thing I think anybody wants is a work stoppage at this point. Yeah, for sure. That's my like biggest nightmare at the moment is a longer period of time without NBA basketball. It's driving me insane. Hmm. How are you coping? What are you doing to kind of curate content at this point? Yeah, it's... Uh... I mean, honestly, I think I can easily do probably 90 days worth of shows, five days a week, uh, and feel very good about that content. After that, it might start to get a little stale. I mean, we, we'll um, probably do seasons in review. We can do a lot of our off-season stuff in advance. There's obviously plenty of historical research that can be done. Uh, th- there's a lot of work that I kind of can catch up on because there aren't games every day. Um, that I'm actually looking forward to doing. But 
obviously it's it's a major concern. I mean, we kind of were like, all right, should we? Because what what our what we usually do is we do five days a week during the season, and then during the off season from mid July until beginning of October, we do two days a week. So we were like, hmm, should we shift to two days a week here? And we're like, no, we're gonna. I think people want to listen to the show still. We're going to continue to do it. And if listenership drops so much that it, people aren't listening, then maybe we go to two days a week. But as long as people are listening, I think we'll try and stick with uh, stick with the five days a week until further notice. Yeah, I'm sure people could definitely be consuming more content with the time on their hands right now. So I know I appreciate it, and I'm sure plenty of other people do. And the last thing I'll ask you here, Nate, is who are some of the low-key names around the league of impact guys that you really have a uh, sort of an affinity for here that aren't the ones in the main spotlight that you're hearing all the time. Like we mentioned, Celtics being high on Grant Grant Williams, that sort of tier player that you feel like are undervalued or underappreciated throughout the league. Yeah, Maxi Kleba is one that really pops out to me uh, on, on the Dallas Mavericks. I've always loved his game. We talked about those playoff players who don't have weaknesses. I mean, he shoots it. He can finish alley-oops. He can defend out on the perimeter. He can protect the basket. He can defend in the post. He's going to do a good, nice job on Zion Williamson uh, a few games before the hiatus. Uh, I really, really like his game. Plays hard. He's shown he can play more minutes this year. That's one that, that really comes to mind for me, for sure. I, I Just totally unheralded guy. People were probably surprised he got an $8 million a year contract. Um but I, I've always loved his game. That's one that really comes to mind for me. Um, Damian Lee on Golden State is one that I think, you know, limited physical tools, but just great understanding of the game, like knows how to play in Steve Kerr's system, can shoot it, has added a floater game this year, and just knows how to move without the ball. Like, things just flow much better in that Golden State offense with him out there. I, I, I'm hopeful he can contribute next year, certainly in the regular season. His physical limitations could catch up to him in a playoff series, but I, I think that's one that comes to mind for me. Um, I don't know. What do you think of those guys? Yeah, I, I mean, I think both of those are great examples. I'm not all too familiar with Damian Lee because I got to say I haven't watched – I'm sure I have not watched the amount of Warriors that you have this year. Yeah, that, that was a wise decision. Yeah. <laughs> what is that? What has that transition been like? I mean, because, well, how many years have you been uh, in Warriors media? Yeah. So 13, 14 was my first season. So it's basically been, I mean, I've been very lucky overall in my life. I grew up in Chicago in the nineties. I lived in Arizona for the Nash Suns the next decade. Oh, wow. And now I've been here in the Bay area for the decade after that. So uh, yeah, it's been a little different. I mean, we've also been in Chase Center, which has been weird. You know, there's been about half the amount of media as there usually was no national media around, really. But, uh, I mean, I've kind of liked a, a little bit of a slower pace so that I could concentrate more on the rest of the league. And if I there were some really good games on at home that night, I didn't have to go to the Warriors games. That, that just made my overall studying of the league more, more easy. But yeah. I, I think ultimately I, I am – and this year during the playoffs to not have to go to playoff games and get home at one o'clock and have to record after that. But I mean, that, it's just like a nice one year break. I think I, I wouldn't want it to go on any longer than this. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you're not going to have to wait any longer. I think that's part of the reason that warrior fans <laughs> and covers are all right with it. You know, it's just going to be one year and then all of a sudden we get two of the best shooters of all time back. So it'll be fine. And a high level draft pick. Right, right. Which so, just yeah, well, it, to, to the, the extent any exist in this draft, I guess. That's right? a that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Still, salt adding insult to injury. Two of the best shooters of all time, and then 
one of the best draft picks of the year, most likely. Yeah, Adam, uh, I'm guessing, based on your accent, are you based in Australia? England. Oh, in England. Wow. Okay. So, so many people say Australia. Even when I'm stateside, people stop me and ask me what it's like in Australia. I'm like, I've never been. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, do, so that's interesting. Yeah, I guess because there are so many Australian people in NBA media, I just kind of assumed that uh, that's what it was. So what time I'm, is it there right now? It's like uh, like 10 p.m., huh? No, it's um 7.45 p.m., so it's not too oh, okay. bad. It's nice and early. Nice and I'm trying really... to be the pioneer Englishman into the NBA media. That's the plan. Well, you got, uh, you got Mark Deeks as a trailblazer for you. That is very true, actually. I need to follow in his footsteps. <laughs> He's, um, he does some good work. He does some really good work. How did you become a, uh, a Brit who is into the NBA? There's not a lot of y'all as a... Not from my age range, from the generation below, there seems to be a fair few kind of appearing now. Uh, For me, it was, I can't stand soccer. Uh, I grew up in the Jordan era. So like first few games, we didn't really get many games here, but the ones we did get were like prime games. So it'd be like um, Celtics versus Bulls back in the uh, early 90s. Um, and for some reason, I just decided I didn't want to support Jordan because everybody else was doing it. So I went with the Celtics and 24 years later, here I am. We'll just act like you weren't a baller that played against Luol Deng or anything growing up. But that happened. <laughs> <laughs> that happened. He beat me quite badly. Um, do you, so I actually, so 1991, is that when you... So I was born in 87, so it was around like, 90, okay. like 92, 93 was like when I start, when I can remember sitting up oh, and gotcha. watching a game. That was a, that was a bad time to become a Celtics fan. You basically had like 10 years of total irrelevance immediately right when you started. Yeah, but we had really little amount of basketball content. So I kind of like in my mind, I fast forward to like drafting Paul Pierce and that's when we started to get content. So I was okay with it. I was okay yeah. with it. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Patino years just kind of uh, probably best not remembered, I suppose. Those were my formative years. So um, I, the way it worked here was we got what we was given and we said thank you. <laughs> you're you're going you're gonna to eat this Dino Raja and you're going to like it. Yeah, you get one game a week and if you don't like it, you're waiting until the next week. And then by that, <laughs> so it's like, okay, I'm going to watch whatever you put on TV and I'm just going to be grateful that I get to watch it. Who was who your favorite Celtics player in like the mid nineties? Oh, you're going to take me back. Um, the earliest player I remember watching and like wanting a Jersey for was Antoine Walker. Oh uh, yeah. Well, I did have employee number eight. He did have a good Jersey number at least. Yeah. I think that was the earliest time I remember like really understanding what was going on and who I wanted to, kind of model my game after early and then obviously i realized there was much better guys to model my game after later on <laughs> i mean i was fortunate i got to grow up around like um nick nurse was the coach out here for my city's basketball team for quite a few years oh wow so i got to go and watch those play obviously i didn't understand who nick nurse was until like 15 16 years later but oh, yeah, he wasn't he wasn't wearing like the nn uh baseball caps back then no, he had like a slick back. <laughs> <laughs> had like a slick back going on. But, oh man, that's yeah, that's kind of, amazing. That's kind of cool. That guy's been everywhere. Yeah, he's coached like three or four teams out here, um, and one t- one championships with every team he coached. 
What was like the average attendance for a game back then? Like two hundred. That's a, that's uh. It was in like high school gyms. Yeah. But like um, the level was quite poor. I mean, I remember playing against somebody that played for one of those teams, and I was like fourteen, and we played to twenty-one, and I, I was playing for like um England youth team at this point, but I was dropping like. I think I dropped 14 on him. And I was like, you're pro and I scored 14 on you. And then as I got older, I was like, well, you weren't really professional, was you? <laughs> <laughs> you were just a little bit better than everybody else. But no, it was good. It was good to watch. It was good to... Um... And then obviously Brendan said, Lou Olden come up in a similar um, basketball program to what I did. So then our teams would play each other once a year or twice a year. So that was cool. But that kind of wraps up the show. I mean, unless there's anything else you want to discuss, Brenda. That is all I got. Just thanks again, Nate, for coming on and taking the time, man. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. This was fun. Appreciate it, Nate. Thank you, man.